0: My name is Graham, and I get to be one of the pastors here, primarily working with students. And uh, it's an honor for me to be able to hang out with you this morning and to uh, spend time in God's Word together. We are opening a brand new series, as Jason mentioned earlier, um, called Hearing God. And there are several reasons why uh, Jason uh, believes this to be a really powerful time and a powerful thought to to wrap our minds around, specifically in this season. Obviously, many of you who are in a family setting know that your calendar runs pretty much August to May. um, And happy August to you. That is happening now. Um, And then uh, some of you are like, oh, goodness, school's next week. So um, because of that, life is about to get pretty busy. Um, And we live in a, a loud world. Uh, Between all of the different things going on in the the media, to political kind of tensions and unrest, to health crises, to all of the different things that we've experienced, specifically over the last year and some change. But even further than that, just in general, the world is loud. And the enemy is louder. Uh, There's an enemy who who wants to control so much of our lives, wants to take ground where he can. and, And he gets louder at times. And at times it can be really difficult. For us to discern the voices that we hear, that is the the the, the movements that we feel within our spirit. Where, where are those things coming from? Who are they coming from? And so, I, as we put our minds towards hearing God this morning and for the next couple of weeks, um, I, I think it's critically important that that we we lean into it. That this isn't just some recycled message. This isn't just some, oh, we're talking about hearing from God again. No, it's, it's that important because it's how we hear from God, the steps that we take, the, the disciplines that we install, the, the, the things that we will do to position ourselves to hear from the Lord. It's, it's that that will literally change the way that we live. And so when I think about hearing from, from God, uh, I think, uh, oddly enough, Uh, About For those of you who grew up in Tennessee or have kids that are are in the school system now, you know what I mean when I say TCAP. You might know what that is, the TCAP testing that happens in elementary schools. So for me, it, it stands for Tennessee Comprehensive Assessment Program. It's essentially the ACT for like fourth graders, and it's miserable. Um, and it's like a week long of testing that they go through and there's all these different subjects that you have to, you have to, to, to test in to see where you're advanced, where you're, where you need some, some extra love and tender care. Um, and for me, I was always on that side of the, of the spectrum. But, uh, for, for, for me, TCAP was just miserable. Uh, it was a week long, you're just tired. You're already like, there's like no recess. Like it was just, they incentivized TCAP by letting you chew gum. Like that's like the big prize. And I was like, guys, we have to do better than that. Bring donuts or something, right? TCAP's just miserable. And for me, I was in fourth grade. And uh, I remember it was probably day three or four of the week. And it was just like, I'm just praying for like swine flu to hit my house or something. Like I just, I'm over it. God, give me the gift of strep throat, like whatever I can do to not be involved with TCAP this week. But the Lord uh, did not send that my way. And so it's probably Wednesday or Thursday morning. And Uh, I'm just already not having it and the books get passed out in my fourth grade class and on the front of the book that hits my desk are three words that changed my outlook on TCAP forever. Answer key provided. I was mistakenly given the teacher's book that had the answers uh, in the back of the book. Fourth grade Graham has a decision to make. Uh, do, I, do I tell the teacher, hey, I've got the wrong book? Do I quietly just ace this thing? Fourth grade Graham was unfamiliar with two things, Jesus and biology. <laughs> so that book stayed on my desk for the duration of that test. Unsanctified, it's a process, you know. So for me, I, I weighed the options and I was like, yeah, I'm going to take the test and I'm going to take the book. And so I thought I was being super slick. I thought I was like just totally killing it. The test starts, I, I start flipping to the back of the book and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm sly about not just like totally here's all the answers. And so I'm flipping back and I fill the bubble in and I look at the, oh, what's that question? Oh, it says it's C. So I'm gonna flip in. I'm gonna bubble in C, right? And I finish the test and I just feel like an absolute boss. Like I could, I could teach science forever. And, and I get to the end of the test, I close my book and my teacher looks up, and I'm just thinking, yeah, girl, like, I, I've killed this thing until I realize that I have finished a 60-question test in nine minutes. <clears throat> I'm not that smart. Miss Jones looks over at me, and she goes, and she, she motions me to the, the, the desk, and I, I walk up there, test in hand. I'm thinking, like, man, I'm just, look at me, guys. Like, I'm going to get to go chew more gum than you, all the different things that are going through my mind. I get there, and she looks at me. And she goes, are you okay? And I said, i yeah, I'm good. I'm just, I'm just done. She's like, You're done. I said, Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I'm done. And she said, Okay. So she she takes the test and she holds up to the light, make sure I didn't like counterfeit anything or like, you know, uh, that I was like putting designs with the bubbles or something like that. Just, She was like, Are you for real? I was like, Yeah, I'm done. I go back to my seat and I'm like, like I'm good, right? Everything is good. I'm, I've just aced this thing. She runs the test through the little machine and I'm sitting towards the back of the room and she looks at the, the score, she looks up at me, looks down at the score, looks up at me, and I go, Rutro. <laughs> so she makes her way to my desk, and it's in that moment that I learned two things. Think one, I learned how much of a moron Ms. Jones believed me to be. Because her exact words were, Graham, there is no way that you got 100% of these answers right. I was like, God bless your ministry, Ms. Jones. Like, Thank you for your encouragement. Like, There's no way that I could be 100% right on this, right? I also learned how much of a snitch Lauren Anderson was sitting next to me <laughs> because Lauren's sitting at the, the, the desk next to me. I had a crush on Lauren until this day uh, because we're not friends anymore. And so uh, Lauren is, is sitting, uh, sitting next to me and Miss Jones walks towards me and she says that and then she goes, he had the answers. And she looks down at a paper and I'm like, snitches get stitches where I come from, Lauren. And then uh, she said, the answers were in the back of the book. And I said, check the back of your face, Lauren. Like, I'm like so over it with Lauren, man. She is just diming me out. And it's in that moment Miss Jones looks at me, and I have this decision to make. It's like, do I own up to what I've done and face the, the wrath of fourth grade teacher Anna Jones? Or do I keep playing it cool as if everything is, is good? I wonder if you've ever been there. Or you've, you've made a decision, something has happened, you have broken something, you have gone a certain way, you have, have made a decision that has created a need for consequence, and you don't really know what to do. What's the, what's the next move here? How bad is this about to get for me? What's it's going to cost me? Do I, do I try to go make it right? Do I just keep hiding? Do I go business as usual? What is the, what is the play here? How do I deal with what it is that I have done? There's an interesting story in John chapter 8, if you have your Bibles with you, John chapter 8, where this, there's a woman who faces pretty much this teacup moment of she has made a decision and now she's in this position where she has to answer for it. And I know that seems crazy as we're set up hearing God and now we're talking about teacup tests and chewing gum, but I promise we're going to wrap it all in together. John chapter 8. In verse number 2 we'll start. It says at dawn he Jesus went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery making her stand in the center. And said, "Teacher," they said to him, "this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law Moses commanded us to stone such women." But what do you say? They asked us to trap him in order that they may have evidence to accuse him. Right away, I noticed something that's off about this story, something that's a little bit peculiar. Best I can tell, it takes two people to commit adultery. And yet, there's one woman standing in the center of this circle. Where's the man? If, if adultery is the sin, if, 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 if sexual morality is the sin, then, then how is it that she is the only one answering for it? The logical explanation is that the Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, didn't really care about her sin. She wasn't the issue. The reality is her sin was a tool that the Pharisees were trying to use to trap Jesus. Her sin was a tool. They were not concerned with justice. They weren't concerned with her sin primarily. Yes, it, it, she was against the law, but the, ultimately their goal was not to imprison her or to kill her. Their goal was to put Jesus in a tough spot because two things would have happened in this moment had Jesus gone one way or the other. If he says, no, she doesn't deserve punishment, she, he excuses her sin and he, 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 he dismisses the accusations against her and says, no, she doesn't deserve to die then it puts him in a position where he loses his, his Jewish audience because he's inconsistent with the Jewish law. He, he doesn't have a backbone. He seems inconsistent. He seems like he's a pushover, and he loses a lot of the audience that he's built up, a lot of the following that has followed him. Or he says, yes, she is, uh, she's supposed to die. It's fit for her to face execution. And then they say, gotcha, again, because in this day, Capital punishment was only enforceable by the Roman government. So then Jesus is out of line by saying, yes, that's true. That's what needs to happen. Jesus is in a no-win situation here. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, tried to put him in that spot because they wanted to accuse him, wanted to have something against him so they could reassert their authority and their power. So what does Jesus do in response to knowing what is happening around him? It says in the end of verse 6, Jesus stooped down. And started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Yikes. The one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. And then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. Now, we don't know definitively what he was writing. We, we, the scripture doesn't ever, ever, ever clarify for us what it was that was being written on the ground. We don't even really know who was close enough to see what he was writing on the ground. But there, there are, are suggestions. Some would suggest that he was beginning to write the names of the Pharisees. And then when he stooped down again, he was writing the sins of those Pharisees into the sand. They derived that, those that believe that theory derive that from Jeremiah 17. that says, that uh, God says, those who depart from me will be written in the earth. Others believe that this is actually a a crossover back to Exodus 32, where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai, and it says the tablet was written by the finger of God. In other words, Jesus, being the, 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 the great high priest that he is, giving a new commandment with the same finger that wrote the original Ten Commandments long ago. We don't know definitively. What he was writing in the sand. But here's what we do know. Whatever he was writing in the sand was significant enough to shift everything about this moment. Because in verse number nine, it says, When they heard this, they left, the Pharisees, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he, Jesus, was left at, the, with the woman in the center. And then Jesus stood up in verse 10. And he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And verse 11, she says, no one, Lord, no one. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What happened here? It's easy to look at this passage and go, well, Jesus must have just been in a good mood. And just gave her the hall pass for the day. Like, yeah, you made a mistake, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. Or, yeah, stuff happens. I get it. It's easy to look at it and go, Jesus is just, you know, he's just being flippant, being cavalier. He's just saying, it's not a big deal, right? Don't, don't, don't sweat it. Happens to the best of us. Don't, don't worry about it. That's not what's happening here. Because the word that Jesus uses for condemn. In the original language, neither do I condemn you. The word that he uses means to execute a judgment against. That's the word that that is used in the original language. To execute a judgment against. Literally translating Jesus' sentence into neither do I execute a judgment against you. Think about our, our court system today. When someone commits a civil or a criminal offense of some kind, there's a case uh, that is brought against someone. Typically, if they are found guilty of that case, of, the, of that charge, there's a penalty assessed uh, of some kind. There is some sort of retribution, some sort of a, a a restoration that has to take place. Some sort of penalty that is assessed to the offending party. Unless you get that like super nice judge at the traffic court or something like that. Like typically, they don't let you just walk out scot free, right? It's an extremely rare occurrence that you don't walk out with some sort of community service or a fine of some kind, damages or reparations in some sort of a civil matter or even prison time or in some cases even up to capital punishment. It's a very rare occurrence, maybe doesn't happen at all, for a judge to find someone guilty or a jury to find someone guilty and then a judge says, all right, let me sentence you. Hey, man, you know that thing you did that brought you here? Hey, don't do that stuff anymore. All right, cool. We good? All right, great. Well, that's not how that goes, right? Typically, there's a whole lot more substance to whatever penalty is being assessed. Plug that scenario into this conversation. Jesus, the judge on the bench, the woman on trial for her offense. And yet Jesus doesn't say that I find you not guilty. It says that I'm not going to execute a judgment against you. He didn't, he didn't say she didn't do what she did. I didn't find you not guilty. He just said there will be no penalty assessed under the law. You see, Jesus didn't ignore or excuse her sin. He didn't dismiss her action. He just didn't make her pay for it. Why? Because he knew he was about to pay for it. He's days, weeks away from being that payment that she could never pay on her own. It's not that he's flipping. It's not that he ignores it and says, ah, don't worry about it. No no big deal, right? It's not that he says it didn't happen. It's that he says, you're not going to have to pay for it because I'm about to pay for it. It's in that moment that you and I can begin to understand something pretty significant about what it means to hear a voice in our heads sometimes, in our souls sometimes. There is a fundamental difference between condemnation and conviction. There is a fundamental, just substantive difference between conviction and condemnation. In this scenario, the conviction happened. She's guilty. She's not denying it. No one is arguing with her. She doesn't have an attorney present. Jesus is not even saying that she didn't do it. The Pharisees, it said that they caught her in the act. It happened. The conviction happened. But the condemnation didn't. They're not the same. She was guilty as charged, but the penalty never came. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, maybe it's just me. But uh, the, the moment that you choose to follow Jesus, the moment that you become a Christian, that you give your life to follow the Lord, it doesn't really change much about the sin struggles in our lives. Temptation doesn't automatically disappear. There isn't this fight that just goes away. If anything, you end up fighting harder. You don't just become this like perfect believer, blameless before everyone, the moment that you choose to follow Christ. I think I punched my brother at lunch an hour after my baptism. (laughs) Sanctification's a process, man. You don't just have this like, this moment where all of a sudden everything's perfect. Perfect and you just have nothing wrong with you right there. Ken Witten once said, we fight hell by the acre. You just take ground as you can. You just keep pushing, you keep fighting, you keep moving, and when you fall, you fall forward. For the believer, when there's sin, there's a, there's a, there's a reason to be convicted. The, the fallout of that action the, the, the reaction, the domino effect is much different. This is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 8. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The same word, condemnation, the same derivative that Jesus used in John chapter 8. When he said, neither do I condemn you. So we don't live under that condemnation. That shame, that accusation. The scriptures describe the enemy as the accuser. We don't live under the accusations, we don't live under the condemnation, but we do live under conviction. We don't live under condemnation, but we do live under conviction. In other words, though we may not be responsible to pay for the sin in our lives, we are responsible to deal with it, to acknowledge it, to recognize it, to own up to it, to confess it. Hey, I have the teacher book and I cheated on the test. We got to have that moment to confess it, to fight it. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So how do we handle conviction? What does that mean? How do we know the difference and why is it important to us that we live with a spirit conviction in our hearts? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll have a couple of these verses on the screen for us. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul again writing um, to the church in, in, in Corinth and uh, really messed up church to be totally honest with you. He, the, he wrote two letters and they're the longest letters in all of the New Testament. There's a lot of issues going on in Corinth, right? He spent a lot of time dealing with them. And he says this in verse 10 of chapter 7. He says, for godly sorrow produces a repentance, That leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow produces death. Godly sorrow produces uh, repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow produces death. In other words, conviction is godly sorrow. The feeling that God sends of a sense of responsibility and of guilt and a weight of that, that I have done this, it comes from the Lord. But he says the worldly sorrow produces death. Condemnation, being worldly sorrow, produces death. Now, who do we know whose end goal of your life is death? John 10.10 10 says the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Conviction leads to repentance. Condemnation produces death. Paul goes on in verse number 11, and he says, uh, For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. Here are the things that produce. The desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing and zeal, what justice. Paul's saying, hey, this godly sorrow in you this conviction that you feel, this stuff that God sends to you, it produces a desire to be clean, an indignation, an anger with your own sin, and I'm going to fight because of the conviction that's been placed on me, a fear of the Lord, a deep longing, meaning an affection for God. Zeal. It's going to produce passion in you and a desire to see justice done, see things made Right. And so, if you're anything like me, you're looking at it going, okay, I'm doing the math in my head here. Jesus paid it all. I I can't do anything to fix my sin. And yet, God still wants me to feel bad about it. What gives? Like, if I can't do anything to fix my sin, I can't do anything to pay for my sin, to, for, to get forgiveness on my own, yet God wants me to feel bad about it, to feel guilty, to feel responsible for it, to feel this conviction. Why? What is the point? And I think it's this conviction is not how God charges us, it's how God changes us. It's not how God charges us, He doesn't rack up the bill. He doesn't say, well, you've done this this week, and this, and this, and this, here's what you owe me. It's not what he charges us. It's literally how he changes us. That through the conviction process, the feeling of responsibility in our hearts that comes not from the enemy, not blame, not accusation, but leadership of our own soul from the hand of God. That's what changes us. You see, conviction is a necessary part of the journey. Imagine a world without conviction from the Holy Spirit, where you and I don't have any responsibility. The Lord never really brings us to a point of obedience, and there really are just no rules. Well, Jesus paid for it anyway, so don't worry about it. We never grow, and we never reach the world. Because how are we supposed to impact the world that we look exactly like? Scripture says we're set apart. We're different. And it's God's leadership through conviction, through nudging us, through, through bringing things to our attention that we should, we should bring to him, we should confess, that we should deal with, that we should kill in our lives. That is what God is after. But you see, when we think about hearing God, we think about the, the series that we, we're, we're, we're living in for the next couple of weeks. You're like, how does this all work? Right, like how, how does this, what does it matter to hearing, hearing God? How does that work into this, this story? I don't know if you know this, but the enemy would love nothing more. In fact, it's one of its primary initiatives. For you to live in constant shame. That is, every step that you take and every day that you live, you take with remorse, with heaviness with darkness, and with a shame of accusation that cripples you. He wants you to live a dreadful life without hope. The back half of that scripture I mentioned a moment ago in John 10.10, 10, the thief has come to steal, to kill and destroy, but what Jesus says, but I have come. You may have life, and life more abundantly. And I happen to believe that abundant life is not something we're waiting on. Something we have access to today. But the enemy would love to keep your focus on here's here's the problem. You're broken. You're not good enough. You can't make it on your own. There's, there's something inherently wrong with you. That's what the enemy wants to constantly remind you. But here's what's crazy. Those very truths, those very things the enemy is trying to keep in your head are the very same things that God needs you to believe about yourself. Because the entire point of the gospel is that we are broken. We're not good enough. There's nothing we could do to fix ourselves. There is something inherently Wrong with us. It's the same message, but it comes from a different messenger. The enemy brings it in condemnation, the Lord brings it in conviction. And here's the difference condemnation points to the problem, conviction points to the solution. The enemy just wants to focus on you, 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 you. You've done this, you've done that. How could you do this? Why would you do that? You're such a loser. What were you thinking? You, 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 you are the problem. Everything's wrong with you. And yet, conviction says, hey, all that can be true. Bring it here. Bring it here. I'm going to fix it, I'm the solution. Condemnation points to the problem, but conviction offers a solution. Condemnation will drive you to despair, but conviction will lead you to repentance. Condemnation shines a light on your sin, but conviction gives you somewhere to take it. Condemnation shouts about your past, but conviction gives you a hope and a future. Condemnation seeks to weigh you down, but conviction seeks to lift you up. Condemnation says, what are you going to do? Conviction says, look at what Jesus has already done. Condemnation says, what about your sin? What about your shame? And conviction says, what about the blood of Jesus? Condemnation is about the problem. The enemy focuses there. But conviction from God is about coming to the solution. And there's this battle that we'll fight. There's this tension that we have in our hearts, and our own minds, where it's so hard sometimes when we break something. Something has gone wrong. We have made a decision or we have introduced sin into some area of our lives and we have gone astray. There's a moment where we have to pay attention to whose voice we are listening to. Whose voice am I listening to? Am I going to live in shame, just in immense guilt? Just just downtrodden depression over my sin. Woe is me. I'm so messed up. I'm so messed up. Everything about me. The whole point of the cross is so you'd stop looking at yourself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The enemy wants you to keep, stay there. It's about you. But God offers something else. He says, hey, yeah, all that, all that happened. You, you, I, can't, I can't change that. I can't change what you've done. But you bring it here, and we'll fix it. You bring it here, and we'll fix it. There's an interesting uh, text in Revelation chapter one, where John has this vision of the risen Lord. And in Revelation 1.18, Jesus says the words, "I hold the keys to death and to hell. I hold the keys to death and to hell." I picture this moment in, in, in hell, really, where, where the, Jesus has gone to the grave, he's been killed, and he's, 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 he's in the grave, and, and the enemy just thinks that he has won. Like, we're throwing a party, we got, like, bagel bites and nachos coming, like, hot wings are on the way, like, it's, we are, we're just absolutely throwing a big old shindig in hell, because we have won this thing. And then Jesus comes out of the grave, throws a curveball that Satan could not never hit. I picture Jesus, and this is probably not not theologically accurate, but it it makes sense in my mind. I picture Jesus walking down to hell and knocking on the door, saying, hey, you guys having a party? Awesome. Hey, you got some keys I'm going to need. On the enemy's best day, he lost the keys to his own house. So why would you give him the keys to yours? On the enemy's best day, he lost the keys to his own home. And ever since, he's been looking for the keys to yours. Why would you give him access to your thoughts? Why would you let him have control of your mind? Why would you give him the microphone when Jesus speaks a better word? Condemnation from the enemy. Jesus speaks a better word. Yes, conviction is a growth process, but it 's done out of love I'm bringing you in close. it's how I make you more like myself. When I was in seminary um, doing my master's work, I, um, I, I was given this project in one of my Old Testament classes. Uh, it was through um, Union University, and we, we had this professor who had given this uh, this uh, project, this assignment to, to develop and, and to outline the missiological implications of the heart of Christ in the Old Testament. Just a thriller. <laughs> Essentially, what, what, was, what was assigned was, hey, you're going to um, you're gonna have to find places in the Old Testament where you can see the heart of Christ, the redemptive work of Jesus, even before Jesus ever came to earth, where is the missional heart of God, God moving to his people, and you can't use the popular ones, so you have to just, where, where does it show up in the minors, in the mundanes, in the everyday life? Not the famous text, but in the, just every day. So I'm like, I don't know where else to start. I'll go Genesis, let's just do that. I get about three chapters in, and there's the famous text in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall of man. Adam and Eve sat in, in perfect and unbroken fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden, and they have one job. God says you can have everything throughout the entire garden, and yet the only thing you can't do is eat the fruit from that, that tree in the middle. Everything else is yours, and you'll, you'll enjoy un- unbroken and perfect fellowship with me, but just don't eat from that tree. God leaves the garden, and almost immediately Adam and Eve go, Hey, you know what would be a good idea? You down with some fruit? Let's go do that, right? That's not how it happened. But in my mind, it's like almost immediately. You're just like, what are you? you literally, you had one job. And they introduced sin into the world in this moment. Everything was perfect, whole, spotless. And they introduced sin into the world with one action. You think you've had a tough week? They changed the course of human history. Better have been a good Apple. And there's this moment where they, they, they feel this immense amount of shame to the point that they even clothe themselves because they realize that they're naked and they never felt shame before. There's this weight that comes over them and, and they don't know what to do. There's, we've broken it. We have blown it. We had one assignment and now we couldn't even keep ourselves from doing that. And then in verse eight of Genesis chapter three, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then in verse 9, here it is. So the Lord God called out to man and said, Where are you? Where are you? Knowing everything there was to know about what had just happened, being, being all-knowing, he knew exactly what had gone on in the garden. He knew all the ramifications that were about to take place, all the different things that were going to have to be a result of this action. But the first words out of the mouth of God that, these, that Adam and Eve heard were not, what have you done? They were not, what were you thinking? How could you do this to me? I thought you were better than this. No. In the midst of their brokenness and their their shame, the first words they hear from the mouth of God are, where are you? Why? Because since the beginning of time, God has always been in pursuit of his children. Since the beginning of time, since the first day, God has been in constant pursuit Of his children. Sure, God would handle all of the consequences that were going to come down, all the different things that we're going to have to go through, all of the different results and the domino effects of their actions after this conversation he has with them, but not before it. Because the first thing he wanted them to hear is where are you? It's for for me in my world, sending students up to college ministry and then on into young adult world. The parents have this tension of we want to be still a parent in our kid's life, but we also want to give them the freedom to be an adult, right? But here's the the tension that a lot of parents can fight is I want to lead them and discipline them and grow them, but I don't want to create an environment where they never feel like they can come home if they've messed up. This constant desire of parents to always be the first phone call. I want you to know, like the prodigal son's father, you can come home. You call me. I don't care what you've done, how broke you are, you call me. We'll fix it. We'll get through it. There may be penalties to it. There may be punishment to it. There may be some ramifications that have to take place to safeguard the the future. But in the moment, where are you? I want to be with you. Let me come find you. Maybe the best news that we could receive this morning is that we have a God who, no matter how broken we feel, how far we have run, how dirty we are, and how much we have blown it, we have a God who desires to be with us, to be near to us. He is a God who does not condemn. He does not accuse. He doesn't bring condemnation. He's a God who's gone to drastic measures to be near to be with you, to get in the mud with you. A God who knew what he was buying when he went to the cross. Every sin that Jesus paid for in your life on the day that he went to the cross was a future sin. Hadn't happened yet. He didn't keep a receipt. He knew exactly what he was buying. And the way that you and I will recognize the difference in the voices that's not my father. The shame, the accusation, the hatred, the, the, the divisiveness, the, the separation, that's not from him because of the cross of Jesus Christ is proof that God did not desire to be distant. That's not there. That's not from him. God's leadership, leading my soul in repentance that produces what Paul said, all of those things. It's how he changes us and our distinguishing of those voices will literally make all the difference the wisdom the discernment god will give us to recognize hey jesus said my sheep know my voice as we fight this tension man i'm my prayer is that we would do so asking god for his wisdom his discernment to know hey that's from that's from that's from somewhere else that's not from me don't live in that shame don't take one more step in depression you get rid of that. It's not for me. I'm loving you through it. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world. of sending them the word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.